Hello, and thank you for tuning in to Starting Small. Before we get into the episode, I want to remind you guys of Starting Small Summit. On April 13th in Mishawaka, Indiana, we're hosting our first live in-person summit at Bethel University. We're hosting a speaker panel of Joe Foster of Reebok, Stacy Madison of Stacy's Pita Chips and Be Bold Bars, and Dr. Jonathan B. Levine of Glow Science and JBL New York City. I hope to see you guys there and make sure to check the link in this podcast description for tickets and all the details you can find about the speakers themselves. Without further ado, enjoy the episode. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to Starting Small, a podcast about brand development, entrepreneurship, and innovation in the modern world. In this episode, I'm joined by Sherry Siadat, founder of Tude Beauty, clean makeup for everybody, everywhere. With an industry full of stereotypes, Sherry made it her mission with Tude to put a light on our differences that make us unique. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to Starting Small. Today, I'm joined by Sherry Siadat of Tude. Sherry, thank you so much for joining me today. What up? Thanks for having me. Of course. So I'd like to start out with your upbringing. So where did you grow up and what was your childhood like? Are you ready for like a seven hour therapy session? Of course. Uh, I grew up in a very small town in Massachusetts. Um, and I really had this like narrative of other growing up. I'm uh, Iranian American and my parents came here in the seventies um, and I was born there in the eighties at a time when diversity and inclusivity was not the norm. Um, my town had like less than 3000 people in it. And I think when you're um, someone who definitely did not feel and look like they fit in with their classmates. Um, it's interesting how at a very young age, while you may not have the emotional wherewithal to put a name to that, you feel that um, quite deeply. And mm. As a result, I, uh, I'm a big jock. I'm a tomboy. So I like played a lot of sports and I moved and I'm a ballet dancer. And so I would process my emotional complexity through movement. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got teased a lot about the way I looked from ha- having a unibrow, having darker skin, um, just overall having more hair than my classmates. Mm-hmm. And that really sowed these seeds of shame inside of me where all I wanted to do was look like my blonde hair, blue eyed classmates. Um, mm. And so this like Pandora's box uh, secret kind of like of shame was embedded inside of me. And when I was able to move uh, in eighth grade to Florida, I looked at that as an opportunity to reinvent myself, to um, you know, hide the previous identity and version of myself and to reinvent myself to save myself um, from trauma and for survival. Mm. So can you kind of explain that transformation, what that was like for you, kind of experiencing what others were seeing and what you were going through and how that changed you in your journey? I love meeting people. I'm like a people person. I'm also very much a chameleon. I'm a Pisces. So I'm so good at like shape shifting in terms of like vibing off of someone and like also like losing myself to their, um, you know, their vibe. I, uh, I think through sports and just like being social and, and just like loving life and, and loving like meeting other people because they teach me so much. They teach me about them and they teach me about myself. I never had a problem making friends and I um, did so many activities. I would meet different types of people. Like I always feel like I have one foot in various different subcultures in the world. Uh, And I think when I moved to Florida, 
that opportunity of removing my unibrow and feeling like I was quote unquote human because I didn't view myself as human. I viewed myself as less than made me almost um, play a role. Like I was playing a hologram of myself, of who would I be um, with this new like visual identity. And I started to keep playing make-believe, if you will, and like doubling down on changing the way I looked and like trying on different costumes, so to speak. I'm saying that from like a metaphysical standpoint, um, to really see who I was. I'm definitely eager. Yeah. Did you have an experience like that growing up? I guess not necessarily, but I went to a fairly large high school in northern Indiana. I'm in Indiana now. And what you see there, it's what you see in pretty much like a university or a high school resemblance in a movie where there's many different cliques, clubs, I would say, uh, um, cliques of different groups who would get along and who would not get along. So I guess fairly similar, but a different experience at the same time. So how long were you in Florida then? I saw you did go to NYU. Uh, How long was this period? I lived there for three years, but it was like one of the best three years of my life from like 93 to 96. Nice. So you ended up ultimately going to NYU. Uh, What did you study there? And then what led you to going to New York? We, my family moved again when I was in 11th grade. So they moved up to New Jersey and um, my parents wanted me to kind of go to a college that was close to home. So Stern Business School was a 30 minute option. And um, I have always been a creative and artistic, but I think being of Iranian heritage, like there's three professions that are really valid. You can either be a doctor, a lawyer, or an engineer. And so I kind of chose the most creative option, which wasn't one of the three, but I guess a businesswoman. Um, And I have a double major in IT and marketing. So I was like computer programming, but also understanding like how to get in the mind of a consumer. That I love psychology and I love creativity. So it was the closest thing um, to those things. Defining those cultures then, what was the support system you had when choosing that career field, say family-wise ultimately? Yeah, I mean, I think my family is very supportive. My father is, um, you know, a businessman himself, a chemical engineer, um, but also just someone who went in the corporate field. So it was not only normal and supported, but almost expected, I think. Mm. With your time at NYU, you mentioned being more active in your early years. I'm curious, were you involved with any athletics or, say, clubs? Yeah, it's a great uh, question. Ironically, I um, went to NYU and studied. I, I, I was, like, super athletic, uh, you know, a big basketball player, actually, and, um, and went to NYU, and there was, there was so much competition at Stern. They had, like, a 20-20-40 curve, like, only 20% got A's, um, 20% got B's, and then the rest C and lower. And that was also my first um, experience with many diverse ethnic backgrounds. And I re- bring that up because it seemed like each ethnic background would only help the other ethnic background at Stern. So it was really funny. So it was like a doggy dog world. And I um, got to New York and I was like this naive, um, sheltered child who kind of grew up and down the East Coast. But like, that was my first time, like not living in my parents' um, roof. And 
I just, I studied and I also just explored New York City. Mm. So as a college student myself, of course, going through school, you have different aspirations and those might shift as you progress through school. I'm curious, you first going into school, what was your aspiration and did those shift going through grade school as well? What did that look like? So I don't think anyone ever knew this about me. I, um, this was in 1999 when I kind of, I started college like fall of 98. And um, back then the internet was really starting to take off. So I had created, I think it was my freshman year, this URL called celebritylooks.com. And the O's and the looks had like eyeballs in them. And my whole concept was this. It was that um, you like what a character wears on television. You were able to go to my website. You would click on the TV show. That TV show would then click on all the characters and then you would click on the date of the episode and then all the clothes that character wore on that episode were able for purchase. Like so far ahead of my time because <laughs> I, don't, I don't think that still exists now. And just, I guess, with Instagram kind of sh- uh, creating shop, some of these things are still coming um, out right now, but that was, you know, 20 some odd years ahead. Um, so I, I created a whole website of that. So that's where I wanted to go. That's so cool. Did you end up launching that? And did you end up having some consumers use that as well? What did that look like? Well, the funny thing is in the middle of my college experience, um, the, the bubble burst, like at 2000. So um, I didn't pursue that at all. But I, I you know I created the prototype on it for my, I, I forgot my e-com marketing class. Wow. So I'm curious then following your years at NYU and prior to TUD, uh, what did you do for work? What did that look like? Um, I entered the pharmaceutical industry of all things. I uh, My senior year, 9-11 happened and there was a big crash in the marketplace, but I um, was fortunate enough to have gotten a bunch of different offers. I had gotten an offer and accepted at an energy company um, because it paid me the most. I just took the one that took, paid me the most. And when I went away with my college boyfriend after he graduated to Europe, uh, a letter was sent to rescind my offer. And so I came back with um, a big shopping bill and, and no kind of signing bonus. So I went straight to like monster.com, which was like a big uh, employment website back in the day. And um, in six weeks, I found a job as a um, marketing executive, uh, not executive, sorry, account manager for a pharma marketing company. And that's how I kind of got into the pharma world. Oh, wow. So how long were you in that industry, would you say? A decade. I had that, oh, that wow. whole career. All my 20s, I was in the pharma uh, pharma marketing industry. From And I had various roles from, um, I started in the marketing department, then went into ops. And then I ran an entire like distribution fulfillment center from customer service to the warehouse to a certificate department. Um, then that went back into product development and being um, a product manager, helping the sales team, running an SAP implementation, then leaving that company and going to another one to um, start two business units for them, one of which was essentially like Amex points, but for doctors. So I was always trying to get in the mind of how could I incentivize a physician to earn education, to learn education, and then earn um, 
a medically relevant gift because we were trying to change the model from cash to something that would help their office. Oh, wow. That's fascinating. So I'm, I'm curious, what did that look like? So you were trying to design a payout system for patients and customers uh, in relation to the doctor? Yeah. I mean, it was, it was really challenging because you're trying to, um, from a psychological perspective, you're rewiring their neural pathways to want to commit the same action, but for a different reward system. And when you're used to getting cash, it was so much harder to say, Hey, instead of that $200 check, you're going to get a stethoscope now. (laughs) So, um, my job was to figure that out. And my job was to build the infrastructure and the website and also the distribution channels to ship the various medically relevant gifts uh, worldwide. Wow. So I'm curious of the progression here where the inspiration for Tood starts to come in. What inspired you to create Tood and ultimately pursue your own company? Great question. I feel like my whole life got me ready for Tood, um, which is short, which is short for attitude. And um, it was something that I, I really fell into. A lot of times you hear that with entrepreneurs, like it just comes to them because they were almost meant to be to kind of start that. I left pharma industry and became a mother and got really into like the philanthropy world, um, particularly with the arts focus. And through that, I um, was playing around with my identity more. Like now I'm a mother. Now I have a little bit more of um, a relationship to self. And then I had these outlets to transform my hair, my makeup, my style, and like, and um, and really see how that's viewed in the world. Like there was a lot of external validation I got from that. Um, and then when I had my third daughter, because I have three girls, um, she really resembled me. And I was still on that hamster wheel of continuously changing my appearance and continuously conforming to Eurocentric forms of beauty. And bearing witness to her and how she physically looks like really was this mirror that was like held up to me to examine my own relationship to self to say, why does someone who looks so much like me, I value as beautiful and effervescent and um, just perfect. And I really understood how much I hated myself and the way I looked. So that wasn't an indication of anything other than the real work is not in changing anything about how I look. It's how am I rewiring my brain? have a new attitude. And that's why Tood um, was born because I decided to grow back my unibrow. I decided to face a face I hadn't seen in 24 years, simply because I thought that if my children bear witness to a woman who faces something that is the most uncomfortable, hidden, dark secret, and she um, doesn't allow it to control her, that she just sits alongside it and it just is Um, that is a really powerful message and that's a really powerful witnessing that they can have um, to hopefully help them and through that um, I decided to write a children's book to to share that experience because I completely changed as a person I saw like my confidence completely evolve I saw 
the relationship I engage with change because when you view yourself as less than, then also everything else around you in your world will also feel like non-reciprocal. And through writing this book, because I thought that I could help a younger generation understand that message from day one, I wanted to bundle the book with a complimentary product that would allow this section of my face um, my unibrow to be like my superhero mask. And I wanted children to have an ability to paint themselves, um, the parts of themselves that they may, you know, be embarrassed about or the parts of themselves that they're in love with, but it really gives them the agency through a nonverbal way of sharing with the world. Now I will throw colors and crystals on parts of myself and you can't look away. And this is my power. What makes me unique is my superpower. And that is how to the concept was born. Wow. So that's really inspiring. I'm curious here, was the idea for a product or an accessory to aid in the book when you created the book? Or did Toot enter here just organically and branching off the book, you launched Toot from here? No, I mean, I was in my second round at Scholastic and um, I thought this is a product that I wanted to bundle with the book when it launched. By the way, that book has never launched. So <laughs> I end up um, stop working on that book for like a month later to um, walk into a lab and see, could I create one product that was at the intersection of clean, colorful, high-performing cosmetics? Because I really believe that we live in an over-polluted world, not only from a formulation and packaging standpoint, but also from a mindset of the messages that we're told in the beauty industry about who wears makeup, how to wear makeup, where makeup should be worn. Um, and it's been so binary that I thought we're all creators. We all deserve paints to self-express and wear makeup wherever it's worn. And by the way, clean beauty should be democratized. It shouldn't just be for the rich. Um, we all have endocrine systems that deserve to be safe. What if I could create something that would solve a lot of these, you know, challenges I see in the industry where I wasn't feeling like they were being met and with no experience, but just like a passion and a vision of what a world that I always wanted to belong to a world that I also wanted to have for my children. Um, Tude was born and I was just very steadfast and vigilant on, um, non-negotiables and I couldn't believe how quickly when you're so clear on what you want that formulation can happen for you. Can you explain to the listeners what that prototyping process and the R&D process looked like when you first went into that lab? For example, what were you looking for for say a clean and aesthetic natural beauty product? What were you looking to create at that lab? I um I from a very young age saw the world only in colors, meaning like if I would like something or dislike something, I sometimes saw color around that. And that color would indicate a mood or emotion. So the first thing I did was go to Sephora and buy $400 worth of products from all different people to literally mix the colors I wanted. I also wrote down what is the uh, texture? If the, is there a smell? Like how should it be applied? All of these things, just not knowing any better, but just trying to be very clear to the lab of what I was looking for. So I walked in 
share with them my palette, share with them my desirability for the feeling of it, how it can glide on. Um, and then from a formulation standpoint, I knew from being pregnant, this was the gift that I got, not only my children, but I also had an understanding of how toxic everyday products are. I didn't know until I got pregnant. Therefore, I had a list already of like what I find rude. Like say like, like Tude finds these rude. So I said, make sure that this list of, um, you know, toxins are not in my formula. Um, that's how I started. It was very simple, very basic, no experience, but just from all I had known at that moment in my life um, and trying to kind of do better. From launch then, uh, what would you say was the main marketing strategy? Uh, discovering both your voice and projecting the voice and tone along with how did you project that? So the funny thing about Tude is it's a brand I built and a business I built with products, but it's very near and dear to myself. So sometimes I feel like we're too enmeshed because it's not just a, a brand, it's, it's me in a brand. Um, there has a lot of benefits to that and also a lot of things that can be challenging. But the benefit to that is the following. When it comes to marketing, my only job is to continue to learn who I am and what I stand for and what I believe in and to have an outlet or a platform to share my views. I think a lot of my experience growing up, I always felt like my voice or my feelings were not valid. Um, and now Tude is, a, is, is my way of sharing with the world all the feelings and all the observations that I had growing up in a world that ne didn't necessarily serve me. So that's been really fun is, is just being able to speak my truth, is being able to tell my story, and also knowing that everyone, you included, have your own version of a unibrow story. So there's like a humanity aspect to it. And for me, it was so much about the non-toxic thinking and the non-toxic formulas simultaneously. It wasn't one or the other. It wasn't like I sat in a room and I'm like, I'm going to launch a beauty brand. Let me think of how I'm going to position myself. Let me think of the lie I'm going to tell the world. So it's very rooted in authentic, individualistic expression. Mm. Since launch, have you been able to depict your main demographic? And what would you say is that main demographic for Tude? Yeah, I think my tagline when I launched was makeup for everybody everywhere. So our premise is you may have like a creamy eyeshadow. And right now you can kind of see I have it on. But that could be spread on your unibrow. That could be spread at the nape of your neck. That could be spread like anywhere you want. So we call it freestyle color cream. And we created the world's first biodegradable glitter in the world made out of eucalyptus cellulose. And when we, and we have some tools and we have something called soap brow to shape. Um, now remind me of your question again, because I just got derailed. <laughs> <laughs> no, no worries. So what would you say is the main demographic overall? Oh yes. No, no, that's why. That's why. Okay. So, um, I thought that like, and I still believe this, we are a brand for everyone. To me, it's a psycho demographic, not a, um, a demographic. And so when we launched, we were showing a world, a two world. And I was very intentional with like who I cast in campaigns because part of my mandate is 
How am I telling the stories and showing the faces of people who had never had an opportunity in beauty? I feel like that's my service to the world, to show what an inclusive world actually looks like and no more performance around what a diverse world is. When I did that, I realized that this past year, because we're about a year old, we're over a year old now, uh, January 4th was our birthday. Thank you. I know that my values and Tude's values, right, is Gen Z. It's not that I'm trying to be Gen Z. I am a Gen Z in a millennial body. And when I think about the values like first to market and biodegradable glitter, the sustainability that we have in our packaging and in our manufacturing practices and also in our secondary cartons, um, our views toward disrupting the binary concept of like where makeup should be worn, our views toward like a genderless aspect to it. It's not, it's for really for everybody. Um, and just like the concept of mental health really being the main focus of this, because I love to say there's no amount of makeup that be, that can cover up for the lack of self-love. All of these values are actually what Gen Z believes in. So this year you'll see, I think, more of a focused effort in that marketplace. Um, and we have some retail deals that are very exciting that will also be in alignment with that. And um, I think it's, uh, I like to think of myself as the mother of Gen Z beauty. And I think it was not by accident that I happened to have a Gen Z mindset, but be maybe 20 years older because I needed to help usher in a brand that would um, allow Gen Z to take it and implement it and continue to evolve the planet. So throughout this conversation, you've described it so well, but I'm curious if you could describe your main differences from competitors, what would you say that is? Even though your brand is so unique, what would you say are those differences? I actually don't think we have a competitor. Um, and I also live in a bubble. I live out in Anacantit and I don't look at any one quote unquote as competition because I think I come from a place of abundance and I want to actually help other brands that also have a similar mission. And it takes all of us to work together to save the planet and to motivate ourselves to not put toxins in formulas anymore and to share where our packaging vendor is that is actually has a zero carbon footprint. Um, if we don't do that, we all will face, we are facing the largest, uh, you know, crisis in our lives will be climate change. And um, Gen Z is very aware because they're inheriting that. And I want to be ushering in solutions and not contributing to it. Um, I look at that as my social responsibility. Um, and so a part of me being like, I, I create all of my products myself. I create my palettes. I of course work with a lab to make it, but I really like to keep my channel open, but also in, in, a, in a creative bubble. So I'm not impacted by the toxicity of the world, if that makes sense. Definitely. So within the past year, if you can depict maybe your top seller product wise, what would you say that would be? Definitely. No, I, um, uh, we have um, a product called Turn It On Soap Brows, 
which is an all natural way. I like to say of, of microblading, it's essentially glycerin soap with something called the tude brush, which is made out of like recycled bamboo with these natural bristles. And you kind of rub the product of the soap on the brush and you brush it in your brows. And it kind of gives you this very like feathered editorial <clears throat> hold. Um, it, it's not like crunchy and it doesn't feel like gel. And that has been, you know, sold out a bunch of times. And I think because it's an everyday type product and also like you can have a full face of makeup or just wear soap brows. Um, it's been, it's been our top seller, but right after it is definitely our bio glitter as well. Amazing. So I like to conclude each episode with this. If you could share one piece of advice with an aspiring entrepreneur, maybe something you've learned or regret, uh, what would that be? I know what I always would say, but I'm trying to actually think of what is a regret. <laughs> Some of our guests have previously said no regrets, which I fully support as well. I, I don't, it's not necessarily regret, but I will say, look at everything as an input. Never look at something like a failure because every action that you do will have a, uh, a consequence or an outcome. And you have to really look at that outcome and see, did it help support your strategic vision? Does it help um, communicate to the world what your brand's about or promote sales? Whatever the criteria is. And then you can evaluate that input and say, okay, if, if I want a different outcome, how do I need to change? And, and like, what is the feedback mechanism to evolve this? Um, I'm definitely a, uh, a people, a, a recovering people pleaser and perfectionist. So every day I have to do the work of not only, um, continuously being conscientious of like what I do, but it's actually about accountability, not only holding like your team accountable, but really yourself to say, if I want to implement this change and I am expecting my team to execute on that, how, what is my accountability and my role in that to ensure that they're number one, set up for success. Number two, they have the tools also that enable them. And how am I being crystal clear with my expectations? And then if those aren't being met, it's actually my responsibility to um, hold them accountable because something that I fell into a lot with this brand, as I said, I'm very uh, enmeshed with it, is that when I felt um, the level of work wasn't to my satisfaction, instead of um, actually giving the opportunity to the people I work with to say, hey, this is great, but this is where we need it to go and allowing them to evolve from that I would end up just taking it on to fix it myself because it seemed like it would be faster for me to do it than to like, you know, ask them to. But what that really leads to is burnout. It's not sustainable. So this is the year I declare for myself, no more self-betrayal. And it's truly like the year of self-love and which is a huge tenant of Tude. So if I really love myself and I don't wanna betray myself, then I also can't continue to be a workhorse because that is in fact, uh, you know, bullying myself into, um, it's bullying myself to performance and to success. And isn't the goal of to, to just love yourself as is nothing more, 
So that's the part about accountability that I'm talking about. It's like, how am I holding myself accountable to the things that I even preach about? For sure. Well, Sherry, thank you so much for joining me today. And to the listeners out there, make sure to check out Tood at tudebeauty.com. Thank you. And follow us on our social accounts and let me know any, any pictures you want to see or any tutorials or whatnot. Hey, thank you for listening to this episode of Starting Small. If you would, leave a review on whatever platform you're listening on. Also, follow Starting Small Pod on social platforms to keep up to date on future guests.